0: Hearing this passage, uh, the skeptic speaks first, and of course, he is incredulous. What are you talking about? What a ridiculous story. Paralyzed people don't get up and walk again. If you bozos had any idea of what, how it really works, how biology works, of how the human body works, you would know this cannot happen. This is just some myth or some story that has been passed down through the generations, and you bozos are just licking it up like it's obvi- like it's true. How could you be so stupid to not understand what's really going on in this text? And he's angry, he's blustery. It seems like I, uh, I never meet someone who is Um, a little bit atheist, right? Like many people we know, we know a lot of atheistic people, and most of them are like, you know, they just don't talk about it. But if they talk about it, man, they have got opinions. And so this guy just puts them all on blast on how stupid and silly this story is. Uh, The Bible scholar goes next, and she has a whole lot of things to say about this text. She thinks it is important Uh, that they see all of the literary functions of the text. It's important, notice how no one here is really given a name. Uh, When we go through all the people in the Bible who have been healed, we don't say, oh, and then there was Larry when he got healed, and then there was Samuel when he was healed, and then there was Susan when she was healed. It's always the man who was lowered through the roof, or the man with a withered hand, or the woman that had a flow of blood. So she says, note how that character's not there because the text is trying to get you to focus on Jesus. And she's right. The text is trying to get you to focus on Jesus. And then she talks about the literary form, how all these miracle stories largely work the same that the setting is given, usually a somewhat generic setting. Maybe a city is given, maybe it just says the countryside. And then we have a description of the disease and usually a little detail, like how long the person had the disease and what the nature of the disease was and all of those kinds of things.
1: And then there's usually
0: something that complicates factors. Here, there are two. One is that they cannot come into the room and so they have to pull back the roof and lower the person from the ceiling. The other complicating factor being these religious teachers who um, are doubting Jesus' ability to do the things he does. There's usually some sort of discussion back and forth between Jesus and the person. And then there's the miracle. And then when it is over, everyone is amazed. This is an important part of a miracle story. That at the end of it, there's a real summary statement. And all were in wonder about what had happened. And this scholar uh, then talks about the function within the early church, and these forms tell us that the early church had a need for this and this and this within the ecclesiological setting of the blah, 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 and she goes on and on and on, and 20 minutes later and a few naps later, she finally finishes explaining all of the literary function of the form of a miracle story within New Testament writings. Next is the theologian, and he has worked his way up. He is ready to go, and he immediately goes, why do we even call this a miracle story? And everyone else in the room thinks because there's a miracle in it. he goes, but is it a miracle, or is it a sign, or is it a wonder, or is it a working of power? Have you looked at the Greek behind this passage? And they all go, "No, we've not looked at the Greek in this passage." And he goes on and on and goes very um, about. Well, what's the purpose of this? How does this passage let us know about God? Is it a is it a revelatory miracle that shows us the character of God, or is it a salvific miracle that is about how God will save people? Or uh, what does this passage tell us about Jesus and his approach to first century Judaism within the fights between halal and blah, 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 blah. And he goes on. And again, people get bored. And then when he's done asking all these questions and answering precisely zero of them, he's quiet. Uh, The woman is, uh, who's a churchgoer, is hoping that the pastor will save this conversation. And it is his turn now. And so the pastor shares his thought. And uh, you can tell that he's uh, maybe a little nervous about this all. Um, he first of all notes that this passage shows us determination on the part of the people who are bringing the paralyzed man to Jesus. If only we were all so determined, our attendance would be better and our tithing would be better, right? This is the first thing that the pastor wants to talk about. He then tells a joke about a dog or a puppy or a little kid or something like that that makes everyone laugh. And then he goes, let's not get distracted by the paralyzed man. The real point of this passage is that God can forgive your sins. And so the real important thing here is this spiritual message that whatever you're going through, God can take care of it. And everyone feels slightly better. They also feel like they've heard the same thing they've heard from that pastor 8,000 times. And he's done. And then we get to the woman. And they all look at her, and she's just a regular person, sits in the pew every Sunday. She's just friends with these people for some reason. And ask, well, what do you think about it? And this is what she says. In high school, my son started doing drugs. We were so busy that we kind of missed it. And once we figured out what was going on, it was too late. He started to get angry and resentful. We were way too lenient on him at some times and were way too difficult on him at others. Eventually moved out, took up with some bad people. And over time, he just stopped calling me. One time it was 412 days between the last time he had called me. I know, because I marked it down on my planner every day. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And in that story, when they're so desperate, to get the man to Jesus, that they're ripping through the roof. I would, oh, I would take a sledgehammer to any shingles in the world if it meant that I could get my son to where he needs to be to be better. And so I feel that desperation. One night we got a call that he was in an accident, and the medics who were there said that they don't know why he was alive, that the way his body was in that car, he shouldn't have made it through, but he did. And I thought that that was the end. I thought, okay, he will sober up now. But he didn't. He just got introduced to to worse and worse and worse things. New kinds of drugs, new kinds of problems. And so every Tuesday, my friend and I would just pray and pray and pray. And just ask that God would bring him back. So one Tuesday night, I got a call from a number I didn't know. And when I picked it up, it was my son and he was at a treatment center. He said he was going to finally do something about his problem. He said that earlier that day, while my friend and I prayed, he was just overwhelmed with one thought in his mind. I've got to stop this. She goes on and she says, for the last several years, he's been back to us. He got help. He's got medical help. He's got friends. He's got family. He's with us. And when I talk to him, and I say, what happened? Why was it different? You were so far gone. So many things happened. What was different? He goes, all I can think is that your faith saved me, Mom. Because you prayed and God moved to save my life. And that's why I'm with you. That's why I care about this story, she tells her friends. Because this story happened to me and it happens over and over and over again. Um, This fall, we're going to talk about miracles. And the reality of this is the reading that I've been doing for this really depresses me. Okay, It's a lot like sitting in that room. I've got my forum critics over here. I've got my theologians over here. And they're all knee-deep in something other than the Bible. And it's just really frustrating. And it's maybe uh, something that you have... Uh, felt before or been through before as you think about miracles. Uh, on the one hand, you, you read stuff from the skeptical people who talk about uh, the medical side. Well, if he was truly paralyzed and there was nerve damage throughout his legs, it is scientifically impossible for this man to be healed. And listen, I get that. I have doubts that way as well. And we're going to talk about it. We're going to have a theology chat. If you guys are new with us, these are times where we sit down, we talk about something that makes faith difficult. We're going to talk about miracles, science, David Hume, all sorts of really nerd out philosophy stuff, okay? Please come, it'll be fun, I promise. Uh, but it'll be a theology chat on miracles can they happen? Why do they happen? Science, I don't know what I'll call it. So I get that. But for just a minute, to be fair, I'm really unimpressed by the skeptic who points out to me the science on a miracle. They go, well, you know that's scientifically impossible. Well, no, duh. You know, like, what, do you want a medal for that? Do you want a degree for telling me that's scientifically impossible? I know that. The people in the story know that. Notice when this miracle happens, the people in the village don't go, oh, wow, just another Thursday and another paralyzed guy, right? <laughs> no. They all go, they were all amazed. We've never seen anything like this. The reason it's in the story is because it violates the laws of nature. If you've not noticed, we don't have many passages about Jesus doing his laundry or grocery shopping or his bathroom habits. Right? Because nobody cares. We want to find out what Jesus did that was extraordinary and amazing and changed the world. So of course these stories don't follow the rules of science and nature. We don't expect them to. The deeper question is: Do you have such a worldview that allows for something other than the empirically empirically provable? Do you think there's stuff that exists that you can't measure in a beaker or with a with a measuring tape? And that's a really deep philosophical question. Because if you say, "Well, no, of course, I only believe in things that can be proven by science," okay, do you love a significant other? What is that? Is that chemicals in your brain going wild, or is there something deeper and more meaningful to your commitment to someone else? Right? And usually people go, well, it's it's not just neurons in my brain. I actually really love them. What does that mean? It means that you believe in something a little beyond your body chemistry. And so, yeah, we know these (laughs) miracles aren't possible by scientific (laughs) standards. That's why they're in the story. And that's why they're significant. We get to the the Bible scholars. And the problem I have with them is so often they treat these miracle stories as an object to be put under a microscope. Well, if we put the proper critical technique to this passage and cut it apart like this and figure out the different pieces, it will obviously make sense. It's not there for that. It's not there to go, oh, look at that story that those people told about their lives. I fully believe the Bible was not written to me, but it was written for me. And so there's still value in this, outside of looking at it as a historical piece of literature to pull apart. I love theologians. Theologians have an important job. But man, their heads are so in the clouds sometimes. It is so a 500-foot view. I pulled out an old uh, dictionary I have. It's not a dictionary like you think of a dictionary. It's like a theological dictionary, which means there's little articles about topics. You know, I pulled it out, and I looked at the article on miracles. I kid you not, the first page, which is thousands of words, was on the words for miracles. Are they called miracles? Are they called signs and wonders? Are they called this? Are they called that? And they're pulling out the Greek, and they're like, well, when Theophilus talks about it, he uses that word this way. And when it's used in Plato, it's used this way. And it's like, Really? We're seeing a story about a man who was healed, a family who was made right again. And all we can talk about is what Greek word we use, right? And, like, and it's always like, well, what is the theological function? The theological function was someone had a life that was difficult and hard, and Jesus made it less hard. Like, why do I have to? I mean, it's not that this stuff is bad. It's just, it's frustrating. And then um, I've criticized everyone else enough, while well, criticized my own kind as well. Us preachers are scared of these passages. Preachers come to miracles, and we look at these stories the way a poker player looks at their hand. I know that this person I'm talking to, in this room, I'm immediately thoughtful of the various ailments or troubles or issues or emotional or psychological things that you all deal with. And so I see a miracle story, and I'm like, how good is my hand If I tell these people that God really heals people and then God turns around and doesn't do it, how embarrassing is that going to be for me and how devastating will that be for their faith? And so what I do is I just fold. I don't know if my hand's good enough to win, so we're just going to short sell it. We're going to make it a nice spiritual message about how God forgives you of your sins. And don't get me wrong. That is the purpose of the passage, okay? If I have a professor from college listening to this, they'll be like, Exegetically, Caleb, the passage is about the forgiveness of sins. Correct. It is about the forgiveness of sins. But whenever I get so scared of the miracles, so scared of the supernatural stuff, that I, you know, weenie it down to the simplest, limpest, easiest thing for me to say. Why am I that scared? But preachers are scared of these passages. Because we are scared to tell you that God's actually going to be involved in your life. Because we're fearful what happens if it doesn't work out the way we think it will. See, the reality of all of this is this is about the coming of the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about miracles. And we're going to talk about miracles within the context of the book of Mark. Why are we doing miracles in Mark? Partially because of the liberation, but partially because we haven't studied Mark in a while. And Mark is awesome because Mark is the action gospel. Mark is the gospel that is most Jesus-doing stuff, not Jesus-talking-about-stuff. And this is Mark's whole... um, This is the way he sets up his whole gospel. This is the topic sentence for the whole book. After John was put in prison, prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of the gospel of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, this is really important. You've probably heard in church a lot of times, and again, from people I agree with and I'm not trying to pick on them, but it's important to notice a distinction here. You've heard in church that of the gospel of Jesus, or if we said, what's the gospel, what would you say? Jesus died on the cross for our sins, right? That this is the gospel. That is not the gospel that Jesus preached because he's not on the cross yet, so it's impossible for him to preach that, right? The gospel that Jesus preached, the good news Jesus preached is God is close by. That his reign in the world, that his making of all things right is breaking into our reality. And that right now, God is about to invade our world with goodness and beauty and healing and kindness and love and all of this stuff. And it's coming. And what Jesus preached was, get ready because the whole world is about to explode into something different. And that's why he does miracles. Miracles is because it shows you the kind of healing that God is going to bring into the world as his kingdom comes. So the miracles are an expression of that good news. When Jesus heals people, it's because he's letting them know that God is alive and he's active and he cares about what's going on with you. This is what we have to hear in miracle stories. God cares about what's going on in your life. And he'll do something about it. But the reality is, we, and by we, I admit it's often me, we just share mediocre news, not good news. We don't look forward to God doing something exciting. We don't look forward to a brand new day. We don't look forward to that disease actually being healed. We say these really wimpy things like, God, we pray that you'll be with the doctor so that they can prescribe the proper medication that'll chemically react in the right way so that this person is healed. Right? That's what we pray for. Because we pray that he actually did it, and he didn't, we'd feel like you know, a jerk that just didn't understand what he was talking about. But I have been convinced as we come into this, as we finish our Holy Spirit stuff, as we've gone into this new series, Bruce and I have been talking about this a lot. Why do Christians live as if they have no earthly expectation that God's actually going to do anything in their world? I just think we're scared. I think so often we think, well, I don't know. We're just afraid to get our hopes up. But Jesus says, I have good news I do not have marginally good news. I don't have, this will be exciting 5,000 years from now when the new heaven and the new earth comes. I don't have something for you to wait for. I'm not going to give you a false hope that you're going to hold on to for 60 years and then die and be sad. He's saying, no, I have good news for you today. The kingdom of heaven is breaking into the world right now. And I think that I don't experience enough of that because I sit around sniffling my nose up at it. And just like we said with the Holy Spirit, why is the Holy Spirit going to do anything if every time he does it, we go, well, that's not really the Holy Spirit. I think I can explain that away. Fine! We live, I live so not expectant of miracles, so not expectant that God's hand will touch my world, that of course it doesn't. Because he knows that I'm an ungrateful little snot when he doesn't. And so we're kind of asking, what would it look like to be a church that lives in expectations of the hand of God moving in our world, moving in our lives? What if we expected that people who are sick are going to get better in ways that we cannot explain? What if we expect that we're going to find resources to do stuff that we never thought possible? What if every time we did a budget, God said, that's fine, I'll give you way more than you need. Like, what if we live in those kinds of expectations? Instead, we start hedging our bets and looking at our bank accounts. I'm going in circles now. My desire for us, our desire as we look at miracles, is to read it like that woman. How is God going to move in my life? Am I living in expectation, or am I living in doubt and cynicism? In the little ad that we put together that you guys saw last week, there was kind of a, a, a representation of this story. And you see the Pharisees just snarling like, no, this will never happen. And then you see the people like, whoa, is this going to happen? And then you see Jesus like, yeah, it's going to happen. <laughs> just which of those people are going to be, right? Like, where are we going to be? Are we going to live in expectation or not? All right. Uh, so here's a good question. How does a, um, a relationship to the marriage work with two different perspectives based on the characters mentioned today, right? So I think the question is, uh, if you are one of those five people in the room and somebody else is the other, how do you get along? Um, So I'd say a couple things. First of all, there's gradation. So um, I would love every person in that room and I would treat them all well. And I think God cares about them all and they all have the image of God. But that skeptic and me are going to have a real hard time being in a partnership together of any kind, particularly marriage, right? Because they just they are doubtful of and they do not believe the core thing that like makes my life function. If that makes sense. So it's it's hard when there's someone who's uh, believes and someone who does not. It is really difficult um, for them to get along. And I'm not trying to be discouraging if you're in that situation. It's just. Uh, It's just a reality. Those relationships are very hard to um, work with uh, because you don't have the same kind of core to what you do. Um, But within the others, you know, I mean, that's where, uh, you know, for the theologians among us, we just have to remind them, hey, being practical is not a bad thing. And for the Bible scholars among us, we go, well, just remember, this is a book to be used, not just a book to be read. Um. And for the pastors among us, we just say, stop being a weenie, okay? That's what you're... I'm giving you your official declaration. You may use this with me, right? Don't be a weenie, Caleb. Um, you know, there's, there's all this, you know, like there's... So I think there's just, there's just gradation in all that stuff. Um, I would say the biggest thing is within people of faith, we just always come back to Jesus is really important, right? Like being simpletons about this is helpful. Jesus is really, really important, and so, if you're having a fight about something, just remind yourselves it's really important that we do this a Jesus way. And we talk about this a Jesus way. You know, um, it's just, that to me, I think that's uh, kind of a key thing. All right. Um, any other questions? Awesome. Uh, I'll still collect up some prayer requests, and um, we'll have one more song.